ask for God's help to understand the love that he has for us. That's the goal. As we gather together in the name of Jesus, we gather to understand his love for us, that we would be motivated by that love, that we would give that love to others around us. And this morning is just going to be a time centered on staring at the amazing grace of our Savior. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. What would you say sets Christianity apart from every other religious ideology? Sum it up in one word in your mind. You could even write it down. Sum it up in one word. What one word sets Christianity apart from every other religious ideology. During a British conference on comparative religions in the 1950s, experts from around the world gathered to debate on what, if anything, was unique about the Christian faith. They began examining all of the possibilities. Maybe the idea of the incarnation. Well, there are other religions that had different versions of different gods appearing in human form. Maybe the concept of resurrection. Again, other religions had accounts of return from death. The debate continued for many hours until C.S. Lewis walked into the room. He wasn't even supposed to be there, but he wandered into the room. He heard the debate and he said, quote, what is the rumpus all about? And in reply, he heard that the colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among all of the world religions. And C.S. Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. What's the one thing that sets Christianity apart from every other religion? It's grace. Every religion offers ways of gaining approval with God. Only Christianity says that God gained that approval for us on our behalf apart from anything we could ever do. Only in Christianity does salvation not depend on what we've done for God, but rather on what he has done for us. And once we understand grace, and once we understand the gospel, that transforms and changes everything. That's what we saw in Mark's own life last week. We saw a man who had fallen, a man who thought that there was no way he could be restored. And we saw a man who, after staring at Christ, was restored to useful, faithful service and ministry. He stared at Jesus and was transformed by Jesus, which are the two main goals for what we want to do in our time studying the Gospel of Mark. We just want to stare at Jesus and be transformed by him. And I pray that Last Sunday, as we gathered, God did something in our midst. I was able to talk with many of you, more more so than most sermons, uh, after the sermon and throughout the week, of just what God did in our midst last Sunday as we stared at Mark's transformation. And now what I want us to do is I want to look inward and see, has that transformation take place in our own lives? So if you're Mark, And you know your life has been radically transformed by the gospel. 
You know that God's grace is the only reason that you have joy, that you have hope, that you've been restored. You know that Jesus is your everything. Then how are you going to start a book about him? Is it any wonder why he begins in verse one? Mark chapter one, verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Let's pray and ask God to write the eternal truths of his word upon our hearts this morning. God, as we come to your word, we ask that you would do something in our midst this morning that would be impossible for us to do for ourselves. We have no power, we have no control, we have no ability to make these things happen. We want to be transformed, but it is only by your grace that that occurs. And so as we stare at your grace, I pray that we would be transformed by your grace. I pray that there would be a freedom that would be sensed, that would be known, that would be lived out in our church. That we would be truly the most humble and the most gracious people because you are the most gracious God. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes now to see wonderful things from your law, to behold Christ. And may our gaze unflinchingly be fixed on him. We pray in his name. Amen. So because of the transforming effect of the gospel in Mark's own life, it's no wonder that Mark begins by writing about God's grace. Mark can't help but jump in to the glory of the gospel immediately. That's the whole point of the book. And he wants to take us there right away. He doesn't want to give us any introduction, any uh, introductory comments. He just takes us right to the gospel. There are two ways to wake somebody up. There's the, uh, the way that I go and I wake my kids up. You know, I rub my son's shoulder. Hey, buddy, it's time to wake up. And, and then there's the alarm clock, which is the world's most annoying sound in the world designed to startle you out of your sleep. That's what Mark is doing here. There's no quiet, uh, just ease into this. This is a startling introduction because he wants to take our eyes and fix them on Christ. When I listen to the opening of Mark's gospel, I hear an enthusiastic young man who is almost out of breath because he just can't wait to speak about Christ. And so he opens his gospel just saying, this is all about the gospel of Jesus, the son of God. There's a lot of amazing, great opening lines down through history. I wonder what some of your favorite introductions to books are, to movies. See if you can remember, recall where these amazing introductions are from. Once upon a time in a faraway land, a young prince lived in a shining castle. I wish I could do this guy's voice, but I can't. Although he had everything his heart desired, the prince was spoiled, selfish, and unkind. What's that from? Beauty and the Beast. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. What's that from? Tale of Two Cities, and then, of course, the second best, other than the Gospel of Mark, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? That's... But this is the best beginning of all beginnings because it stares 
at Jesus. Mark writes, the beginning. He's taking us all the way back, just like the first words of Genesis spoke promises of a new beginning and a new creation. So too, Mark begins his gospel with the same hope of a new beginning, a new creation. The entire narrative is about everything being made new and about the one who would make all things new. And so he wants us to see the hope that is found in Christ. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel. The gospel, that word gospel means glad tidings, good news. What would it have meant to Jewish readers, to Roman readers, to the audiences around Mark as he's writing these things? What would it mean to the the Jews as they hear the gospel, the the euangelion, the, the glad tidings that are given? Well, I think I could show you what they were expecting when they hear those words, when they hear euangelion, what are they hoping for? I think I can show you. Go back to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40. In Isaiah chapter 40, so Isaiah is written in Hebrew, and then it was translated into Greek in something we call the Septuagint because it was translated so that Greek-speaking and Greek-reading people could read the Old Testament. So when the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek, we have that as the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, Mark was written in Greek. In the Septuagint, which is written in Greek, Old Testament written in Greek, you have the word euangelion. It shows up in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. So don't be afraid. Be excited. Your God is here and this is good news. That's the word, euangelion. You have a king, you have a God, you have somebody who's in charge over you and he's good, so you don't have to be afraid. This is good news. Or turn to Isaiah chapter 52, just a couple chapters over. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, Isaiah writes, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. There's our word, euangelion, who announces peace and brings euangelion of happiness, good news. He announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. So uh, for a Jewish perspective, in a Jewish mindset, when you hear the word euangelion, you're hearing God reigns, God rules. There's a king that's going to be given and we are going to rule and reign with him in righteousness and in peace. For a Roman audience, they use this word as well. It was actually inscribed. We have this inscription that celebrated the birth of Octavian Augustus in 9 BC. We have this inscription and it reads, quote, the birthday of the God was for the world the beginning of joyful tidings that has come to men through him. So uh, Augustus being born, this is good news. This is euangelion. It was also used by the Romans in a military sense. It was used when a war would happen, when a battle would take place, and when the Romans would win that war, they would send a runner back to the city and the runner would announce, euangelion, good news. The war has been won. The the battle has been won. We haven't lost. We're safe. You're secure. Don't worry. Our foes have been defeated. 
So everyone would have known what euangelion means. Good news. A king is coming. A king has won. A king is victorious. And Mark actually probably would have uh, learned this word in its theological context from the Apostle Paul and then from Peter himself as well. Paul uses it over 80 times in his writings. He uses that word euangelion over 80 times. But it's very interesting to note when Paul uses it and when Mark uses it to speak of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they always speak of it in the singular. This is good news, but that word is in the singular because it's the only greatest news that there is. Whereas in the Greco-Roman world, the word gospel was always appearing in the plural. This is uh, glad tidings for everyone, but there's other glad tidings out there. This is one of many. But in the Bible, no, there's no better news than this. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's no better news than this. And so my question for us this morning is why? Why is there no better news than this? What makes the gospel so amazing? What makes the gospel so incredible? And I want to give you three realities that I believe come from even this introductory verse for why the gospel is amazing. Why is God's grace so incredible? Why is grace, as we sing about amazing grace, why is grace amazing? Number one, because of who accomplishes the gospel. Number two, because of how the gospel is accomplished. And number three, because of what the gospel accomplishes. So number one, the gospel is amazing because of who accomplishes it. Mark says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Those are um, amazingly important words. Jesus. That's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh saves. So Jesus is born to save. But he's born. Remember, he was given that name by the angel and he's born as a human. So Jesus reminds us not only his mission, he's born to save, but also that he is 100% human. He is truly human. He's not pretending to be human. This is what First uh, John, the, the test of doctrine is all about. Jesus is not pretending to be human. He is 100% human. Everything that it means to be human, Jesus is. And we're going to see that time and time again in the gospel of Mark. He lived our lives out in front of us. He never played the God trump card. He never played the divine trump card. He never ceased to be God, but he never got out of a situation because, oh, I'm God and I can get out. He lived our lives in his full humanity exactly the way that we have to live our lives. He's a true human. He's Jesus, but he's Jesus the Christ. Christ, that word means anointed one. That is the Greek version, Christos, of the Hebrew word uh, Messiah, Mashiach. So Messiah in the Old Testament is prophesied, the king that is going to come, the anointed one. Christos just means king, the anointed one, the one who's coming to bring deliverance and peace and freedom. So when you say Jesus Christ, you're saying Jesus the king, Jesus the Messiah. So he's human. He's our savior. He's king. But if that's all you had about him, you would have the difficult situation that so many people bumped up into when dealing with Jesus. They think he is a political ruler. They think he is Messiah only in the sense that he'll free us from our political oppressors. And that's why Mark says, the son 
of God. The son of God. Now, son of is a construction that can mean physical descendant of. But that's not all it means in the Bible. It's usually what it means. And even in evangelism, uh, when you're talking about Jesus being God's son, a lot of people just instantly go to a physical descendant, like God had a baby and the baby is Jesus. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what we believe. By the way, our Muslim friends, that's one of the stumbling blocks that they have about Christianity because they don't have an idea of what this actually means to be son of, not as a physical descendant, but something so much greater. So what does son of also mean in the Bible? It means a physical descendant, and usually it means that. But it can also mean just equal to everything that it means to be that thing, son of God, everything that it means to be God, you are. Just think about John 17, 12. Jesus says, I kept all of my disciples. Father, you gave them to me. I kept them. I didn't lose one of them except for one. And then do you remember what Jesus says about Judas? What is the title that Jesus gives to Judas in John 17? The son of perdition. Perdition is hell, the son of judgment, the son of, of hell itself. So does that mean that hell had a baby and the baby's Judas? No, it means that Judas is equal to everything that hell stands for. Opposition to God, wickedness, evil, and punishment and destruction. So son of usually does mean in the Bible, physical descendant, but son of can also mean equal to. And that's exactly what it's used here to refer to. Jesus is the son of God, meaning as Philippians 2 says, he exists in the form of God, but does not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's equal with God. He's isos, Greek word isos, like isosceles triangle with uh, equal sides, um, perfectly equal in every dimension. He's perfectly equal to God. Everything that it means to be God, Jesus is. So Jesus is human. He's Jesus. He's come to save. He's the king, but he's not the kind of king that we all expected him to be because he's God. He's not just a political ruler. He's the God of the universe who made us. And in this one verse, Mark really gives us kind of an outline for the entire book. His book can be split up into two really awesome sections. Chapter one through eight is all about, is Jesus the Christ? Is he the king? And chapter one through eight, we see a lot of times the disciples saying, who is this man? Who is this guy? He claims to be the Messiah, but he looks like a normal human being that's not really doing anything, doesn't have many followers. And then he claims to be God, which is a really weird claim. And sometimes we think it's true. Sometimes we don't think it's true. Who is this guy? And then in chapter eight, there's a climactic moment where Jesus asks Peter at Caesarea Philippi, who do people say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter's response is, you are the Christ. Chapters one through eight are just driving us to Caesarea Philippi. It's the question, who is Jesus? He's the king, he's the Christ. But he's not the kind of king that we thought he was. And that's chapter nine through 16. Chapter nine through 16 is he's the son of God. And it ends with the centurion. Remember the centurion watching Jesus die? He says, truly this man was the Christ? No, he was the son of God. So chapter one through eight is really, is Jesus the king? Yes, but chapter 9 through 16, he's not the kind of king we thought he was going to be because he is God, very God. And we have two climactic moments at the end of both of those sections. You are the Christ spoken by Peter. This is the son of God spoken by a Roman centurion. This book is all about who accomplishes the gospel. 
It's not you and me. We never could. It's Jesus who is the suffering servant, the sovereign savior and the son of God. So therefore in Mark, we must be prepared to meet a Jesus who shocks us and does not meet our expectations. Jesus is going to do things that we never expected him to do. And we will see in the life of Christ that his life will make sense of our own as the gospel brings salvific reality to who we are. So the gospel is amazing because number one of who accomplishes it. This is Jesus, the Christ, the son of God. Number two, the gospel is amazing because of how it is accomplished. We saw this during our look at the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. Remember, Matthew writes, uh, this is your king coming to you gentle and lowly on a donkey, riding on a donkey. How would you expect to see your king? He'd be coming on a war horse, but no, he's coming on a donkey. Why? Because the king is putting himself in the place of the servants. Sin is when servants put themselves in the place of the king and say, we know more than you, we know better than you, we wish we were you. Every religion says, well, just stop putting yourself in place of the king. Just try harder to be who you are. Only Christianity says that will never work. For any real transformation to happen, the king needs to put himself in your place. And that's exactly what the gospel does. That's why the gospel is good news. The gospel is not good counsel. Do these things and you'll live. The gospel is not good advice. Let me tell you a couple ways that you should live your life differently. No, the gospel is news. It's all been done for you. Think about that city that would have heard the gospel, the good news, the euangelion from the herald walking in saying from the battlefield, we've won. Just think about everybody stateside who heard that World War II was over and had been won in the European theater and the Pacific theater. When we heard that, did anybody say, that's because of me, I did that. No, we're saying thank you so much and I'm so glad that people sacrificed their lives to free us and to keep us safe. It's good news because we didn't do anything. How is the gospel accomplished? It's accomplished by Jesus doing all of the work and we do absolutely nothing. That's what grace is. Grace comes free of charge to people who do not deserve it. Grace means that there is nothing that we could do to make God love us more and there's nothing we could do to make God love us less. Now, if you hear that and you think, well, there's... There's questions I have. What about repentance? What about sin? What about continuing to walk in sin? What about all these questions? Don't you have to do something? If your mind instantly goes there, I understand why. But I want to remind you of the reality of what grace is and what grace accomplishes. Jesus did all the work for you. There is nothing you have to do to be saved. Jesus saved you by his work alone. That's the good news of the gospel. We are saved apart from the works of the law, Paul writes in Romans chapter three. And if you hear that and you're a little uneasy, I think you're in good company. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous preacher, uh, would talk, he preached through Romans, hundreds of sermons in the book of Romans. He would talk about the grace of Jesus. And he says this, quote, there is clearly a sense 
in which the message of justification by faith alone, so apart from works, you are saved by God doing the work for you and you do nothing. There's a sense in which that message can be dangerous. And likewise, just like the message that salvation is entirely of grace, it can be dangerous. But he says this, I would say to all preachers, if your preaching of salvation has not been misunderstood in that way, then you had better examine your sermons again and you'd better make sure that you are really preaching the salvation that's offered in the New Testament to the ungodly, to the sinner, to those who are enemies of God. There is a kind of dangerous element about the true presentation of the doctrine of salvation. I love that. That's why Paul has to write in Romans chapter six, should we keep on sinning so that grace may abound? No, may it never be. We, we don't stop sinning so that we're saved, but once we are saved, God's gonna change us and we're gonna change our ways as well. But you do not have to work to save yourselves. In fact, you couldn't work to save yourself. That's what grace is. How awesome is this reality that God accepts you, doesn't just pardon you, but wants you, loves you, and receives you into his family apart from anything that you have ever done. In fact, in spite of everything you've ever done, he holds you and he will never let you go, even though we are just not impressive at all. We're not impressive. God's not holding us and cherishing us because we are awesome. No, he's doing that because he's awesome. Grace, as one author says, has about it the scent of a scandal. But for scandalous people, that scandal of grace just simply sounds too good to be true. My friends, are you here this morning weary in your fight against sin? Are you here this morning burdened by guilt and shame? Are you here this morning thinking, I just can't do it and I can never measure up? You're qualified for grace. And I would say, come and receive grace. Here's the catch, as C.S. Lewis would call it, the catch for receiving grace. He said, quote, St. Augustine says, God gives where he finds empty hands. A man whose hands are full of parcels can't receive a gift, and a man who admits no guilt can accept no forgiveness. Blaise Pascal says, truly, it is an evil to be full of faults, and it is, and we all are. We all are evil people. But it is a greater evil, evil still to be full of them and then be unwilling to recognize them. So are you here this morning trying to say, I'm not guilty, I'm not evil, I'm not that bad. Maybe you're comparing yourself to other people. I'm not as bad as they are, and so I'm doing okay. I'm better than them, I'm trying hard. People usually divide those around them into two camps, guilty people and good people. The Bible says there's actually just two camps of guilty people. You are either guilty and you try not to be on your own, or you're guilty and you accept that reality and say, God, I need help. Most people assume there's two categories, good people and bad people. 
People who are trying and people who aren't. Most religions buy into this as well. There's religious people and there's non-religious people. But Jesus says, actually, there's only one category of every single person who's ever lived. And that category is bad. We're all bad people. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's what Paul writes in Romans 3. No one has perfectly loved God. No one has perfectly loved his neighbor as himself. So we've broken God's law and we all stand condemned. And so Jesus in his kindness says, I'm going to make a new category. There's only one category right now and it's all bad people. So I'm going to make a new category called gospel. And I will perfectly love the father and I will perfectly love people and I will perfectly obey God so that I will win for you a perfect record of absolute perfection, absolute obedience. So the only people that get into that category are people who say, I need that. I'm desperate for salvation. I cannot save myself. So the gospel is amazing because of who accomplishes it. It's Jesus who is human, 100% human. He's the son of God. He's 100% God. He is the king, but not the kind of king we thought he was going to be. The gospel is amazing because of how it is accomplished. Jesus does all the work. We just, with open hands, receive it. Pour in spirit. We turn out the pockets and just say, I've got nothing. I've got nothing here. I've got no coins. I've got nothing to earn salvation. Grace is amazing and the gospel is amazing. Number three, because of what it accomplishes. The gospel is amazing because of who accomplishes it. The gospel is amazing because of how it's accomplished. And the gospel is amazing because of what it accomplishes. It accomplishes so many things. Salvation, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God. We read it in our study this last week in 1 John. No fear of judgment anymore. Confidence on the last day. Literally being confident in the presence of Jesus' second coming to us. And we're confident because we know where you're his. The gospel produces so many amazing realities in our lives. But I want to try, as best we can, based off of what we looked at last week, I want to try and apply it in five different ways to us this morning of ways that we maybe are struggling to understand how the gospel has transformed our lives. What does the gospel accomplish? Number one, it accomplishes passionate gratitude. It changes us and accomplishes in our heart a passionate thankfulness and love and gratitude for all that God has done. Of course it would, because Jesus, being God, very God, comes down into earth, is born like one of us, and does all the work so that we can be saved. What's the best news that you've ever received? Best news ever. Uh, Think about it. Maybe, you know, there's a friend texting you, calling you, telling you that they got engaged. Maybe it's you getting engaged. Maybe it's you getting married. Maybe it's you finding out that you're pregnant. Maybe it's finishing school. Maybe it's graduating. Maybe it's getting that job that you have been working as hard as you can for. And finally you hear, you hear back on it and you got the job. What is the best news you've ever gotten? And now as you have that in your mind, how did you respond? When you were told that news, how did you respond? Was it, wow. Great. No, there are some people who have to put their hand over the phone because they're screaming so loudly at the news. What's the best news that we've all ever heard? It's the gospel. It's that you and I, apart from any work that we could possibly do, 
we can be saved. So therefore, we become, as C.S. Lewis says, jolly beggars. We become jolly beggars. We just feast on Jesus. That's what we get to do this morning. We get to come to the Lord's Supper and feast on Christ because we're jolly beggars. We need him and he gladly provides himself for us. We are so hypoglycemic in our souls. So we need to feast on Christ. The gospel accomplishes passionate gratitude. The gospel also accomplishes, number two, a fighting of our own sin. It transforms our hearts to fight against sin. The gospel is the most powerful transforming force in the entire world. But notice, it's the gospel that transforms us. The gospel radically changes our fight against sin, not the law, not the judgment of God. What what does Romans 2 uh, verse 4 say? It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. That should shock us. That verse should get our attention because it does not say it's the wrath of God that leads us to repentance, even though God is wrathful against sin, full of wrath against sin. No, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. That's why the answer, the solution for your struggle against sin, for my struggle against sin, is not more condemnation. The solution is the kindness of God. Mercy triumphs over judgment and the kindness of God radically changes our hearts in the fight against sin. It's an example that I've used several times before, but I love it so much. Abraham Lincoln, before he was president, went into a slave market, purchased a slave, and then as they were walking away, the slave said, where are we going? And Abraham Lincoln said, oh, you can go wherever you want. You're free. And absolutely bewildered, the slave looked to Abraham Lincoln and said, I can choose to go wherever I want? And Lincoln said, yeah. And he said, then I just want to go wherever you are. That's what the gospel does. That's what grace does. When Jesus frees us from the slave market of sin and death, it doesn't make us want to go back to sin and death. No, it says, I want to go with you wherever you are. I want to be with you. It changes our fight against sin. It's grace that motivates obedience, not the law. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, because of the grace of God, we have died with Christ, so we can't live in sin any longer. And he says these words, consider yourself now dead to sin. You have sin that remains in your flesh, but just consider yourself dead to sin because of the gospel, because of the work Jesus did. Not because you're awesome, not because you could fight it and and defeat it. No, because Jesus did that work on the cross for you. There's an amazing example of this that I just read this, this week. There's a biologist in Harvard named Edward Wilson. And he performed this really interesting experiment on ants. He was trying to figure out why do ants carry out uh, dead ants out of the nest into a, a heap of dead ants way far outside of the camp. So he tried to figure out why this is the case. Why do ants do this? He found out that there is an acid that is produced when an ant dies called oleic acid. And when the ant dies, 
and that oleic acid is produced, the ants smell that and they identify that ant as being dead and they carry that ant out. So he thought, can we find that acid? Can we narrow it down so that we can get it and we can put it on something and see if they respond the same way? So he put it on a piece of paper, put the piece of paper in the ant's nest and the ants took the piece of paper out to the dead ant pile because they smelled that smell. And then he thought, I wonder if I can trick the ants by putting that smell, that oleic acid, onto living ants and see what happens. And sure enough, he was able to put that acid on living ants. And the other ants around, that living ant with that oleic acid on that ant, thought the ant was dead and would pick it up and walk it out to the pile of dead ants. And the ants just, you know, kicking, no, no, I'm not dead. And they'd say, yes, you are. You smell dead. Get out. And as I was reading that illustration, I, I thought about what Paul is thinking of in Romans 6. Our sins have been painted with that oleic acid. And they've been thrown out onto that pile of dead ants. But they're stubborn. They're living and they walk back in and we need to, every time we see that sin creeping back in, we need to say, no, 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 no. Jesus has already wiped you with that oleic acid. You're dead to me. Even if you're wriggling about trying to be alive. No, you're dead to me. But that's not motivated by us saying, I got to be better. I got to try harder. That's motivated by Jesus already having killed our sin. You can only successfully fight sin by grace. The opposite of that is legalism. Legalism is the opposite of grace. We are all naturally born legalists and we're all blind to our, our legalism. So two strikes against us. The law says, go and do this and you will live. The gospel says, go and do this because you've already been given life. Two completely different motivations. But here's the reality. We struggle with legalism, not because we have a high view of the law, because somehow we want to respect and embrace and honor the law. No, we have a view of legalism. We try to be legalistic in our living. We try to earn God's favor because we have such a low view of the law. We think we can accomplish the law and make ourselves look good. A high view of the law always leads you to seeking grace because you realize I can't attain to that. Jesus pronounced unmistakably that God's law is so perfect and so absolute that no one could ever achieve righteousness on their own. And yet God's grace is so great that we don't have to. By striving to prove how much we deserve God's love in our legalism, we miss the whole point of the gospel. That it's a gift from God to people who don't deserve it. The solution to sin is not to impose an ever stricter code of behavior onto your life. The solution to sin is to know and love God and to be known and loved by him. When I was considering getting further education, uh, looking at getting a doctorate degree, kind of two main roads. There's a PhD and there's a doctorate of ministry, which I always call it a doctorate of ministry because the shortened form of that is a demon. And if I as a pastor say, I've got a demon, that doesn't sound good. So I was looking at those two roads. Do I, do I go the doctorate of ministry route, which is a little bit more of a functional degree, or do I go a PhD route, which is a lot more research, a lot of academics? 
And there was one decision that really made it easy for me to understand what I should do. In order to go the PhD route, you had to learn functional German. And I thought, ah, that's it, I'm out. So I went the, the doctorate of ministry route. If I go the PhD route and I have to learn German, which you do uh, to study uh, in the you know, original text, the original authors in German. If I went down that road and I was told by the school, you know what? You're supposed to learn this language, but let's just tell you right up front that whether or not you learn it will pass you. You'll graduate. Will I be at all motivated to learn that language? I might buy a book, read the introduction to beginner's German, close it, and ah, I did my part. I would have zero motivation. So what motivates us when it comes to living righteously before the Lord. It's not, I gotta try harder, I gotta be better. The only thing that would motivate me to learn German is if my wife only spoke German. If she only spoke German, I wouldn't be here right now, I would be learning German so that I could speak to the one that I love. What motivates our righteousness? What motivates our hard works and our efforts? It's not, you gotta get a degree, you need to do this to pass, no, no, no. It's love. If you do not do these things, you will not be able to have a relationship. Isn't that why Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's love. The gospel, changes us from the inside out. And internal change requires relationship and love. So what does the gospel accomplish? Many things, but just for our time this morning, passionate gratitude, number one. Number two, it accomplishes a transformed fighting of sin. Number three, the gospel produces in us humble openness. Humble openness. Churches should be the place where you can be the most honest, the most open. Imperfection is the prerequisite for grace. So we should be the most honest and open and vulnerable about our shortcomings and our sin and our failures. The light of the gospel only gets in through the cracks of our sinful soul. There's one way that we try, and I think churches are known for this, to to go against being honest and open, and it's called hypocrisy. Churches are always told by outsiders, I don't like church because they're filled with hypocrites. And I understand we all preach a better message than we live out. But brothers and sisters, this should be the place where we are the safest, the place where we can be the most open, honest, humble, transparent, because if God has covered us in his grace, then we too should cover each other in grace. There's only two alternatives for hypocrisy. Either be perfect, so you don't have to be hypocritical because you're actually perfect, or be honest. That's it. So a grace-filled sinner looks like this. A grace-filled Christian redeemed by the blood of Jesus looks like this. You see yourself as a sinner who cannot please God by any method of self-improvement or self-enlargement and only then can you turn to God for outside help, for alien righteousness, for a grace that's not of your own. And when you turn and look at Christ, to your amazement, you find 
that a holy God already loves you and has already done all the work for you to be his. That should motivate just full transparency. It's very interesting. I was reading uh, through the, the Gospels. Matthew 7, you know the passage where Jesus says, many on that day will say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. And then Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. There's a lot that that means. But what struck me when I was thinking through this reality is Jesus says, I never knew you. You know, you know me, you know all about me, but I never knew you. It's not, you never knew me, it's you never disclosed yourself to me. I never knew the real you. You didn't take the mask off. You stayed in your hypocrisy. We cannot find Christ unless we know we need him. So the gospel produces humble openness. Number four, the gospel produces a gracious forgiving of others. The gospel produces a gracious forgiving of others. If we are going to stop fighting with one another, we have to have that rooted in the reality that we are no longer enemies of God. A ceasefire with humans is dependent on a ceasefire with God. And then when we know that we've been given that grace, that frees us to forgive. C.S. Lewis again says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. We've seen this in 1 John, right? Do you love your brother or your sister around you who Christ has purchased with the grace that he has given to you? I really only love God as much as I love the person that I love the least. So do you love and forgive those around you? That's one of the hardest things to do in the world. Forgiveness is an act of faith. Forgiveness, when you forgive somebody, you are saying that God is better at justice than I am. God's better at making justice happen than I am. By forgiving, you release your own right to get even and leave all issues of fairness for God to work out. You leave it in God's hands and know that the scales will be balanced by him and him alone. That's incredibly hard to do, but my friends, the alternative is harder, ultimately. Bitterness, resentment, is, it's harder over time than choosing to not forgive, or than, than choosing to forgive. We must be the most forgiving, gracious people in the world. Finally, number five, what is produced by the gospel in us? It, the gospel produces Evangelism. It makes us ambassadors of grace. The gospel produces in us the reality of being ambassadors of grace. John Stott said, Nothing hinders evangelism more than the widespread loss of confidence in the truth, relevance, and power of the gospel of God. We have zero power to change anyone around us. We have zero power to change unbelievers into believers. We have zero to power to change believers into more sanctified believers. We have zero to power to change ourselves into better believers following the Lord. We have zero power. Only grace can accomplish the work of transformation. And this, again, radically changes the way that we even talk with one another. If we're ambassadors of grace, then we need to listen to the words that Jesus said. When he said, come follow me, he said, take up your cross and follow me. 
die to yourself and follow me. He didn't say, hey, take up your whip like I'm going to a little bit when I cleanse the temple and follow me and just you know, beat everyone into submission. No. He said, take up your cross. Die to yourself. Love others with the love of Christ. I yearn, I plead for our church to become a nourishing culture of grace that deep within our DNA as a church, we would have humility and grace just ooze out of us. So that non-believers, when they come in here and they see the gospel and they see the way God has knit our hearts together as a family, they would say, what is going on here? And we could share, it's, it's all of grace. It's all of grace. The church should be the place, the place, the greatest place where anyone can walk in and just find grace on tap, just flowing. Often though, it's the opposite. It's a place of judgmentalism. Church can become a place of critical spirits towards others, a hard-heartedness towards others. I think that this happens, this happens in my own heart. I think this happens when we feel like I've been trying, I've been trying, I've been trying with grace and grace and grace, and it's not working, and therefore I have to try a new tactic. I don't know if you've ever done this, if you're working on some project around your house, and you've got a tool, and you're trying to unscrew something with that tool, and you're just like, it's not budging, and you just drop the tool and pick up another one because you think it's the tool's fault. It's never the tool's fault. It's always my fault. But you pick up another tool in its place, maybe I'll try this one instead. That's what we do with the gospel. We go, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried, done. I'm going to pick up this tool instead, the tool of judgmentalism. Maybe if I'm more critical towards them, they'll change. Nobody ever bad attitude somebody into a good attitude. That doesn't happen. Give grace. Whenever you encounter someone that you feel morally superior to, and let's be honest, we do that all the time. Just recognize, number one, that that's legalism in your own heart, and recognize, number two, that if you truly are somehow morally superior to them, that is somebody in need of grace. And if you've been given grace, you should be an ambassador of grace to them. You should be a conduit of God's grace. And if you're ever tempted to recoil in horror from sinners around you, which, again, can we be honest? We are. We do. I hear it all the time in Christian circles regarding politics. There's a recoiling in horror of, I cannot believe that they think this. Brothers and sisters, we should go, oh, I totally get why they believe that. I totally get it. Because apart from the grace of God, I'd be thinking the same thing. Yes, it's unreasonable. Sin is unreasonable. If you're ever tempted to recoil in horror from sinners, just remember what it must have felt like for Jesus living on earth, the one we're going to study about and stare at. He's perfect, he's sinless, he's God. And you never see him looking at sinners being repulsed. In fact, the people that repulse him the most are the religious elites who say, you sinners are beneath me. He treated notorious sinners with mercy and not judgment. It's very interesting, I read this last week as well. Proportionally, I didn't know this, this is crazy. I don't even know if it's true, but... I read it, so here you go. Proportionally, the surface of the earth is smoother than a billiard ball. You guys heard this? I just read this this last week. Proportionally. The heights of Mount Everest down to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean are incredibly big to you and me living on this planet. 
That's a massive distance to us. But if you go out into the galaxies, if you look at our world, if you look at our earth from uh, galaxies outside of ours, it's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. Whatever differences you may have with somebody next to you, compared to the differences you have with the holy God, those differences don't matter at all. We should be ambassadors of grace and be conduits of grace and be the most loving, kind, compassionate, humble, gracious people in the world. Gordon MacDonald says, the world can do almost anything as well or as better than the church. You need not be a Christian to build houses or feed the hungry or heal the sick. There's only one thing that the world cannot do. It cannot offer grace. So which of those five realities, passionate gratitude, fighting sin, humble openness, forgiving others, being an ambassador of grace, which do you tend to struggle with the most? Which this morning would God be impressing on your heart? That's something that I need to confess a sin. I needed to talk somebody next to me, talk with them about how they're struggling with that and how I can work on that, all because of the motivating power of the grace of God. Grace teaches us that God loves us because of who God is and not because of who we are. And you cannot earn God's acceptance by climbing as high as you can. No, you receive it as a gift. And that's what we're going to do this morning as we partake of the Lord's Supper. We are receiving God's grace as a gift. That's the symbol that we get to enjoy. We are literally being given. We're we're taking, as the men pass these elements, we're taking a, a gift that's been given physically to us reminded of the spiritual gift that was given to us. So as we end our service, we're going to sing, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper, we're going to enjoy feasting on grace together. I just want this one kind of bullet point in your mind to stand out. I want us in this moment and on to the rest of our week to live in the goodness of the gospel, live in the goodness of grace Remember we said last week that this book was given, written for and given to persecuted believers in Rome. They would have been hiding in catacombs, reading this by candlelight, trying not to be heard. You guys know the way that they identified those catacombs as a Christian place to walk into? This is where our Christian gathering is going to be. You know where they would identify it with, not a cross, What would they put on it? They put a fish. They put a fish. They draw a fish next to the opening of the catacomb or next to where the church was meeting. Why a fish? The Greek word for fish is ichthus. And if you take those letters of that word and put them vertical as an acrostic, it writes out Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior. That's where Mark begins. This is all about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior. So this entire study, we're going to be going into those catacombs, seeing that ichthus, and as Mark opens his book, we read, this is all about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for grace 
God, impress upon our hearts a love for your grace this morning, a receiving of your grace this morning. We have come in weary, we have come in broken and hurting, we've come in with so much baggage, and I pray that as we receive your grace now, you would encourage our hearts, comfort us, give us peace, just the way you transform Mark, transform us as we feast on Christ now and his sacrifice. We pray in his name. Amen. I'm going to ask the men if they would come. We are going to pass out the bread. The Lord's Supper is not mystical. There's nothing you know, magic happening here. It is a symbol of what supernaturally took place. And there is an offer of a receiving of Christ. And I pray that we would do that together. And and as we do, as we, we sing, we're going to meditate through song on the realities of Jesus doing all the work. It is finished at the cross. As the bread is passed out, just take it, hold it. If you have questions about communion, if you have questions about the gospel, if you have questions you're not sure, please just let the elements pass you by. Don't worry about taking the bread or the cup. But please talk to me, talk to somebody up here afterwards. We'd love to tell you more about Christ. And if you are in the middle of a battle with sin, you're struggling, I want to encourage you. These elements are for you to be reminded of the motivating power and transforming effect of the gospel. So turn to Christ now and receive the perfection of Jesus as demonstrated in his body and the cleansing blood of Christ. Receive that now as an encouragement and a comfort and a power as you fight sin. So let's sing, hold the bread. We will partake together as a church family after we're done singing. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray Find in me thine all in all Jesus paid it all All to him I owe Sin had left a crimson stain He washed it white as Live 
life up from the dead. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we know that the body of Christ that was broken will never be broken again. He was made whole. He was glorified. And brothers and sisters, if you look at your own flesh, that living ant that's crawling back and forth from that ant pile, You look at your own flesh and you say, I'm done. It's broken. I don't want this anymore. Remember as we partake that there is a day coming when we will be glorified and our sinful flesh will be no more. At the cross, Jesus took care of the penalty of sin and he broke the power of sin. But the presence of sin still remains. But one day because of the resurrection of Jesus, the presence of sin will be gone. On the night that Christ was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and Paul tells us that when we partake of this, we are remembering Christ's death. Why? Because we are all naturally born legalists thinking that somehow we can earn or deserve God's favor. So as we partake, let's remind our hearts. Let's preach to our souls. Jesus paid it all. He alone did the work. 
and let's do it with passionate gratitude as we partake. Let's partake together. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for his body, perfect human, perfectly man. And then taking our sin on the cross, you made him who knew no sin to become sin. You did that because of us. And so, Father, we say thank you for sending your son. Jesus, we say thank you for coming for us. And thank you for leaving your spirit with us, sending him so that we could be sealed for the day of redemption. And Father, as we stare at the cup, as we stare at the blood, as we stare at the atoning sacrifice, I pray that we'd be encouraged, comforted, and reminded that you paid it all. We love you and we pray in your name. Amen.